Thank you for listening. This is Israel Rebound, a podcast joining listeners in Nebraska and other places to Israel, exploring the ties that bind us through culture, identity, and current events. I'm Alan Potash in California, and I'm joined with my co-host and friend, Liz Feldstern in Jerusalem. Liz, how are you? Hi, Alan. Doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. I always enjoy our little uh, introductory hellos because I get to just say hello to you, which is always great. I'll take it. (laughs) So we started last week's podcast with, an, I would say, an announcement of the current coalition dissolving. And I know it'll still take another week or two for that to happen. But we've been really focused on the success of how a diverse coalition can come together to make things happen in a productive way in Israel. And I'm sad to see it dissolve. I had a lot of hope for it. It did last uh, over a year, which I think surprised many people as as the opposition oppositional, oppositional voices tried to do away with it. Uh, but it, it held strong. And I know that it's accomplished quite a bit um, in, in the country. Have you seen... Uh, I don't want to call it a eulogy, but a list of its accomplishments as it slowly dissolves. Yeah, so I think, you know, if we think about it, it makes perfect sense that the opposition party, who now, I guess, isn't so much the opposition because there's no coalition that they're opposing, um, will want to say that the coalition that existed for the past year was a failure. That they, that they weren't successful, that they didn't do anything worthwhile. And it's in their interest to say that because we're already in the lead up to elections, right? But I don't think that's a fair read of the situation. And if we're wanting to look back and see what were, in fact, the accomplishments of this government over the past year, there are quite a few things to point to. First of all, I think it cannot be said enough how this government, having been formed at all, was a huge accomplishment. It is not easy to bring together a coalition with Israel's weird system of political parties and numbers and who's in and who's out and getting to 61 and all of that. It's never easy to put it together. But in this particular constellation, where we had parties ranging almost the entire political spectrum who decided that they were going to sit together, even though they knew full well that this would have certain political consequences for themselves. We had members of Knesset, if we think back to a year ago, who were being threatened, who had protesters outside of their private homes. It was not a simple decision for any of these parties to sit together. And that goes for the more right-wing parties, that goes for the Arab party, that goes for left-wing parties like Meretz, and that goes for Yair Lapid, who even though he had twice as many seats as anybody else, agreed not to be prime minister, but to be let somebody else take that role and that he would be the number two, right? A lot of people made a lot of sacrifices for that government to come together at all. So that's one. And then if we want to look at their accomplishments, so we did talk about it quite a bit, but it bears saying again, that the fact that this government passed a budget when there had not been a working budget for three years was significant. 
And not only did they pass a budget, but they also brought an extremely high deficit back to zero. They started out with skyrocketing unemployment during COVID and brought it down now to almost the lowest it's ever been, less than 4%. Um, they reformed the Israel's policies for kosher supervision and broke the monopoly that formerly existed for the for the rabbinate controlling that. There, there were a lot of things that this government did do, and some of them it did pretty quietly. And so people may not realize, but there for for having come together, stayed together, and and the things that they were able to push through in one year, I think I would count this government as a success. Where we go from here, we'll see. I, I think you know I'm just kind of reminiscing over the co- the construction of the parties that built this coalition. And to your point, it it was a dream to begin with because it was such a diverse group of people. And it reflect, in my opinion, it reflected most of the people of Israel, except for um, the ultra right wing. But it did, it did make an attempt to bridge ideologies, territories, behaviors, on, for the good of the country. And to your point, and to the list of things you just shared, they really did a good job. At the same time, with a fragile majority of sixty-one. Uh, people, 61 seats, of which half uh, half the time, two or three people were always threatening to walk away. And then the threat of the opposition to challenge every, everything that they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in a sense, yeah. it, isn't, it, it is a success. Yes. There are also types of success that are, you know, less in your face. For example, sometimes the absence of something is harder to notice than its presence. I think that this was uh, one of the quietest one-year periods in terms of Gaza or rockets falling on Israel than we've had in who knows how long. And the only reason we didn't talk about it is because there wasn't anything to talk about, which is a good thing. So you think that's a result of the strength of the coalition? I think it's certainly a strength of the coalition. It would be unfair not to give them some credit in that happening. I mean, how else do you explain it? Okay, I, I'll buy that. Um, but I, if I look at the news today, there's still sorts, all sorts of normal uh, challenges that the country has. You've got teacher strikes. You have bus driver strikes. You've of got <laughs> you have conflicts in the. Judea and Samaria, West Bank area. Um, there's always daily stuff. And I, you know, again, they were able to move forward and solve some of those key things. Looking forward, I'm not asking you to predict anything, but how, how does because I have no crystal ball? <laughs> how does somebody like Ear Lapid, who um partnered with Naftali Bennett with, as you said, more more power? people-wise, than uh, Neftali Bennett. Now he's going to be the interim prime minister. Uh, is he, he going to be able to be productive in with his agenda, with the joint agenda? So the answer to that question depends on what you mean by is he going to be 
productive and what is the agenda. If the agenda is getting himself elected with the most seats of any other party come October, then I think he has a pretty good chance of being effective. Being in the position of transitional prime minister definitely gives him a leg up, right? It gives him an opportunity to be front and center, to be seen in that leadership role, to be meeting world leaders. He will meet with Biden very soon. He will make an important trip to Europe. He will do all of those stately things as prime minister. And people will see like, hmm, you know, it's not hard to picture him as prime minister because he's already doing it. And that that does a lot. Um, he, what will the government be able to accomplish in those few months? It depends what, comes up that they need to accomplish. So for example, even though it's a transitional government and you mentioned the teacher strike, the attorney general of Israel decided that absolutely this transitional government is empowered to negotiate with the teachers. So they can settle things like major you know, union strikes. If some sort of a crisis. And God knows in Israel, we got a million different kinds that could pop up at any given time. Some crisis happens between now and the election. This is the government and this is the prime minister that will deal with it. So they'll be able to do what they have to do. Will they push an agenda beside that? I don't know how much they could and I don't know how much they would want to. Right. If you if you really push things, some people are going to like it and some people aren't. And just a couple of months ahead of an election, probably nobody wants to do that. But in the ways that they need to lead, they will for sure be able to. Some of the things you listed that he will do as prime minister, he's been doing as minister of foreign affairs. Mm-hmm. The, yes. So that's in his back pocket. And and that's that's good for him to develop relationships and to strengthen his his presence uh, on the world stage. Yeah, but also locally, right? He he will be seen running the cabinet meetings, sitting at the head of that table in a way that he hasn't you know had an opportunity to until now. So I think there are a number of ways in which the Israeli public will get to sort of see him try on that role. And if we think back to what the two, three, four of the elections we had <laughs> before we got to the one that, that put this now former coalition in place in the first place. One of the arguments that Bibi Netanyahu ran on was saying, if you don't vote for me, you'll be stuck with someone like Lapid. And this was supposed to be a horrible, you know, scary thing. Well, you know what? Now the country is going to see what it looks like to have Lapid as prime minister, and it's probably going to be fine. And so that sort of threat of if you don't vote for me, you'll wind up with Lapid isn't going to hold water. So we'll see what the so election you, cycle looks like so, now. So you just mentioned former prime minister Netanyahu, and he was the leader of the opposition, still is the leader of the opposition. Um, I'm pretty sure he will be running for the or trying to create a government that he's the head of. Is mm-hmm. that being played out much in, in the media or on the street in Israel? You would think that it would be a bigger story 
than it is. I mean, absolutely, there's a lot of talk about Netanyahu planning to run a strong campaign and hoping, yes, to come back to a to a position of leadership. I will just say that even though his legal whatever is still ongoing, unfortunately, in Israel, it is not the first or even the second time when a person who has been accused or even convicted or even convicted and served a jail sentence then came back to serve in national government. So for better or for worse, that's been done before. So that's not making the headlines right now. But absolutely the fact that he, you know, will will want to run and will try and um, bring together a coalition, which again, he has a possibility of doing, right? He wasn't so far from having... 61 last time around, we've said that the Bennett-led coalition was by a hair's breadth the whole time, which means, of course, mathematically, so is the other side. Right. Uh, so, you know, it's it's certainly a possibility. So he does still have a, a foot in the race. And uh, as we know from the numbers of the opposition, as you just said, he could form uh, a coalition to gain 61 seats, although... Yeah, I, I mean, he couldn't right now, right? right the right. reason why this current Knesset is going to be dissolved, that's the step that still needs to happen, right? The coalition fell. The prime minister um, abdicated his spot and handed it over to Lapid. Uh, but the if the... If the opposition were now able to form a coalition with the existing Knesset structure, right? So the 120 people that are now members of Knesset, if the the opposition could form a coalition and get 61 of them to say, okay, we give you our vote of confidence as a government, we wouldn't need to have elections right now. It would just be a switch from one coalition to another. But um, so that is what there have been negotiations going on about over the past week, probably long before that, but certainly over the past week. And I think now they have decided that it's sufficient. Officially, there is no way, no matter which way they tried it, they could not make it work, which is why in the next few days we will see a vote to to dissolve the Knesset. And that is what there are a few other bureaucratic things that have to happen. But that's what will officially trigger us then heading into a new election cycle. So there, that's interesting. I really didn't pay close attention to that while I was reading the news. So there is a chance for a government to be formed in the next couple of days inside of this current situation, but not likely. Yeah. Okay. Right. Well, that's a, right. that's a stay tuned piece, which we'll, mm-hmm. which we will talk about next week when we get together again, I have two other topics I think are uh, worth asking you about uh, one um, there was a huge uh, legal Supreme Court announcement made on Friday in America uh, reversing Roe uh, Roe v. Wade it's the uh, protection for women and and medical professionals over abortion did that play out at all in Israel um it it is talked about a little bit. 
I think that Israelis, for the most part, have a very hard time understanding even why this is the kind of topic that would be so highly politicized, right? Israel is uh, a country, I would say that as a whole, puts a lot of faith in our physicians and in the medical system. And in fact, in Israel, that is who decides if and when terminating a pregnancy is allowed. So it's not quite the same as things were in the United States up until this major change that the the person ultimately responsible for making the decision is the individual. That's actually not the case in Israel. It is the decision of the medical establishment, meaning that if a woman wants to terminate a pregnancy, she actually needs to ask a, um, I believe, a committee of three uh, physicians and maybe one's also a social worker, but three professionals to explain, you know, why this is what she wants to do and they approve or disapprove. Now, I think in most cases it's approved. So in some sense, maybe it's a formality. But officially, that's how the system is built, right? That it's professionals and medical professionals who can make a determination for when abortion is is required or allowed or whatever. I think Israelis have a hard time understanding why a government would even want to be in the position of deciding something like that, right? Why? What makes this a political issue? It's a it's a medical issue. That's a that's a really good position to have, make it a medical issue. And I think that that's a lesson that uh, America could learn from Israel on. Uh, I guess we'll have to stay, again, connected to that news as well. On a lighter note, it's summertime. Tourism, okay. is, tourism is, is hopefully picking up around Israel and other parts of the world. I, I read an interesting article today about glamping, which is camping, but with... I, I guess with a, a glamorous twist to it, I've always yeah. in, I've always enjoyed hiking uh, and bicycling through Israel. Uh, anything that you want to talk about in terms of hiking or exploring the land of Israel? Well, one thing that you and I were talking about recently, and maybe people would be interested to know, there are a number of very big, lengthy hikes in the U.S. I know there's the Appalachian Trail. I think there's one by you that's a a well-known, lengthy trail. And here in Israel, our biggest trail, now all things are relative, we're not a very big country, but the biggest trail in Israel is the Israel National Trail, Shvili Israel in Hebrew, which runs from all the way up north, almost on the border of Lebanon, starts at Kibbutz Dan and runs all the way south, I guess both directions, all the way south to Eilat. It's uh, over 600 miles long and it's sort of a classic trail that some people do in one fell swoop, takes uh, as much as two months, from a month and a half to two months to do it. And obviously, many more people do it in small sections here and there at just a day hike. Um, But that trail is an interesting thing to know about. And for people that might be thinking about visiting Israel, maybe you don't want to do the whole thing, but maybe you want to do a little bit of it. 
So we can include that in the, the notes for the podcast. The the um, hike that you were referencing next to me is the uh, PCT, the Pacific Crest Trail, which goes from Mexico to Canada from mm-hmm. around the West Coast. Uh, and Amy and I had a chance to do a couple miles of it a couple of weeks ago, just a couple. It's, it's 2,600 miles. <laughs> So, a little bit bigger than than ours. Yeah, but still, it's an opportunity, and I know that some people uh, take time to do it, and some people do it in segments. But there is another one also in America called the Appalachian Trail, which is on the yeah. eastern coast of the United States. So hiking is something that many people love to do, uh, and Israel has always been, uh, as a tourist, one of the coolest places to go uh, hiking because you can reach most of them pretty easily. Uh, and because Israel is a small country, it's not that uh, hard to to do two or three trips, two or three hikes in a short two-week trip in Israel. Um, and also very diverse, even though we're small, in terms of terrain. Right. So you have, you know, desert, you have rivers, you have forests, you have a lot of different types of terrain in one small country. One one of my favorite hikes that I haven't done in a long time is the Yehudia National Park. Um, Mm -hmm. It's uh, in northern Israel. It's gorgeous, and it includes water. And oftentimes, you don't always get to see water when you're hiking. But this one, we have to swim across the the river to get to the other side. And it's um, you know it's a wet hike. So yeah, the water hikes are always popular in part because so much of the year here is quite warm and you you know will want to get in the water and certainly now in july if one's hiking i would recommend it be a hike that involves water (laughs) true very true one of the more common ones that most people do is the engedi reserve national reserve it's a nature Mm -hmm, which has waterfalls has waterfalls and then one where you get to view the water is also one of my favorite ones from the north and it's mount darbel uh, that overlooks the Kinneret. So just some ideas for people if they're heading to Israel. And then when I do some hiking, uh, we'll include a link also to some of those hikes. Yeah, uh, It's also one of the topics that if you ask any Israeli on the street, they'll be happy to regale you with their opinion of exactly which hike you should do and what's the best one. It's kind of like a hummus shop. If you ask anyone, they'll tell you exactly which one you're supposed to go to. I think that's that's normal for Israelis to have an opinion on something. Yes, we have a lot of opinions. <laughs> it's good. Uh, that's all I had on my list today. Anything else you want to cover today? That's it. Hope everyone's looking forward to summer and whether it's getting to hike in Israel or hike in the States or just take a walk around the neighborhood and get some fresh air. I hope people are finding ways to enjoy the summer months. Thank you, Liz. And thank you all for listening to Israel Rebound. It's a fun podcast, bringing ideas and all sorts of great things to people to listen to.